Welcome to Dream Business Radio, the place to create your dream business now. Get ready for some inspiration, some encouragement, some proven business building strategies, and a couple of new ideas that you haven't even thought of. It's time to leave slow and steady as she goes to the other entrepreneurs, because this program is all about speed and fast results. And now, broadcasting from his floating home somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean, the dream business coach himself, Jim Palmer. Well, good afternoon, everybody. This is Captain Jim Palmer, the Dream Business Coach, coming to you as I'm recording this from Cocoa Beach, Florida. Yes, that's where I think I dream of Jeannie used to take place, which is, again, showing my age here. I've got a really, really fun interview. In fact, I'm, I'm running late. You won't know this, but I'm running late because um, my guest, Josh Dick, is, a, is just an interesting person, and um, we're really hitting it off. So I'm, I said, man, we got to hit the go button and, and take care of business here. But over the last 15 years, Josh transformed a small family business into a global market leader in the coffee industry with customers in over 70 countries and distribution facilities on three continents, including Starbucks, Keurig. In the process, sales grew more than 25 times, while earnings multiplied over 275 times, which is a huge feat, unless they started at zero, and we'll find that out. <laughs> After the sale of the business, Joshua started a new adventure by moving to Florence, Italy with his wife and three daughters. He now has dedicated himself to helping others who seek to build extraordinary businesses based on what they truly love to do. Recently, Joshua has delivered talks to business students at Columbia, Yale, and Kellogg, and he is the author of a book, Grow Like a Lobster. And I told him, oh man, I'm going to be talking to somebody from Maine who's in the lobster business, but that is not the case. Josh, how are you doing today? I am doing great. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. Yeah, my pleasure. Hey, I just have to ask, when you moved to um, Italy with your three daughters, how old are they? Were they by any chance that you yank them out of high school? <laughs> Do they no, still in like fact, we, we, we thought really carefully about that. The oldest was just beginning sixth grade. Okay. So, uh, yeah, right now they're 14, 12, and nine. Which even sixth grade is probably, you know, it's, it's, it's tragedy with all your, your lifelong friends. But we got I, in I, under the wire, I think. <laughs> I moved twice during high, high school years. And as I look back on it now, it kind of helped me because I was super shy and I was forced to become, uh, come out of my shell a little bit. Uh, so I'm curious about your background. I know um, you're talking about your, your father-in-law was in the Navy and things like that. But what was your background before you became an entrepreneur? Yeah, so my background was a political science undergrad major that really didn't know what he wanted to do, but knew he wanted to do something and wanted to be challenged. And I went from uh, college straight to the world of investment banking. I worked on Wall Street for Solomon Brothers and absolutely hated it. <laughs> I, I learned incredible things about myself, about business, about attention to detail, but realized that wasn't a career for me. And in order to make the transition, I actually went to business school and uh, decided I was going to get into making products. I wanted to touch things. So after I got my MBA, I joined the, the marketing department at Unilever, very large consumer products company, and really had this chance to experience the world of that you know, huge corporate, corporate America. And it was from there that I went to a place that I never, ever thought I would go. And I went to help what was a family business. And uh, from there, the story really became my entrepreneurial mission. And that family business, um, I know I was reading a little bit on the book, was renamed, um, was it Ernex or Yernex or? 
Yep. Ernex Brands. And Ernex was a brand name from the 40s or 50s where a coffee urn is um, how they would brew coffee. And there was one cleaning product in the family business that was made for coffee machines. And they used the name Ernex. I thought it had a lot of value. And I ended up taking that name, renaming the business and focusing on just making cleaning products for coffee machines, particularly by buying a much larger competitor in the space. Wow. Was that, um, was that your father or your father-in-law? Who's, who started no, the business? It was, so my great-grandfather. Oh my my gosh. father was working there when I got involved, and the business was a collection of seven unrelated product lines. Well, yep. very, very gently related product lines. And when I joined, basically it was my decision to focus entirely on one thing. We actually shut down six of the seven other product lines and focused only on this world of cleaning coffee machines. They were detergents powders, liquids, and tablets. I'm curious about, um, you know, your dad, and I don't know if your granddad was still around, but were you the young whippersnapper who's going to change the name of the company and everything we've built? Or were they like really excited to have you there? Yeah, I don't know how excited they were to have me there. I think they were, um, <laughs> they, they, you know, it's funny. I went there when the business was having some trouble as a way to help and to okay. sort of explore it as an opportunity. And I very quickly kind of took a look at the business and said, wow, if I'm ever going to do something on my own, this is such a wonderful opportunity that is there for me um, with its pluses and its minuses. And very quickly, I realized that I wanted to focus the business. I wanted to do things my way. And uh, we ended up doing a, a very, um, I don't know if I call it friendly, but a very um, polite and, and working family transaction where I ended up, my dad ended up retiring and being bought out of the business. So okay. it really became not so much a family business over time as just this offshoot of what had been a family business. And I appreciate so much the opportunities that I had that were sort of the groundwork that was laid for me before I got there. It's interesting, the whole dynamic between generations. Like, obviously, I think you initially, a lot of people start, oh, this is going to be great, you know, work with my kids and this and that. And But you come to realize, I think, that um, just by the sheer fact of your age, and I don't even know how old you are, but um, you're, you think differently, right? Because you're exposed to different things. You've learned different strategies and pr- I'm guessing maybe had more schooling. But also the, the, the way business is done today has changed so dramatically. And um, I've, I noticed uh, when my dad, my older brother, uh, in the late 70s, quit a, a job working for Kroger when we lived in Kentucky. Kroger's a big ch- a food chain. Sure. And he was on the fast track in there to be like the head butcher. And then he was going to run the meat department. It was, it was a big deal. <laughs> and um, he left to be a part-time van mechanic for a brand new company called Federal Express. <laughs> and my dad thought he was nuts. There was no health insurance. It was part-time. Well, my brother just retired, you know, at the age of 60, very, very well said for life as a senior VP. And I think that, you know, my own daughter is an entrepreneur, Jessica Rhodes runs a company called Interview Connections. And um, it's interesting that she is uh, just on fire. And here I am, I'm I'm almost 62 now. And while I'm still, I'm an entrepreneur and I'm growth oriented, I notice my own thinking, Josh, is uh, it tends to go more conservative. I think that's just a factor of your age. So maybe that would did that play a part in the family business? Yeah. You know, I wouldn't say it's, I think just um, 
my dad and I maybe had different aspirations. Okay. My dad had an incredible setup. I mean, it was so wonderful to me that I had a father that was able to be a little league coach, spend time with me while running his business. And his business was stable. When I got there, I realized what I wanted was to really prove something. I think I had yeah. maybe a little bit of a chip on my shoulder and I wanted to build an extraordinary organization. And um, to do that, I recognized that I needed to focus and I need to be very clear and very consistent in the way I articulated my goals and what I was trying to achieve. And because of that, we just saw things differently. And I think we quickly realized that for me to do what I wanted to do was going to be very different if he was also going to be involved. And we worked out a, you know, a very pleasant and, and friendly relationship or transaction. Well, good. You know, um, I was reading in, in uh, the opening part of your book, how the whole lobster metaphor came to be. Was that, So when you wrote this book, was that kind of looking back at what you have had done for, for the business? Is, is yeah, that you was, know, after I, after I sold the business the first time, I brought in investors. I didn't sell the whole company. I went back and I took a day off and went and sat and read. I had kept a, a diary, a journal for the previous 15 years. And it was the place that I would go every day and, and write and be sort of complaining about things and frustrated and thinking. And I read the whole thing. It was about 500 pages. And when I got through reading the book, I realized that I kept talking about this lobster even from the first time. And, and then I started to talk to some of my employees and they're like, yeah, you talk about the lobster all the time. And as I got there, I said, boy, maybe there are things in this experience that I've been through that I should share with other people. I thought there were lots of things that I learned along the way that I wish someone had told me before I got started. <laughs> hmm. And you mentioned um, uh, Trevor Corson, I think was, yeah, Trevor Corson, The Secret Life of the Lobster. That's when you, I think you just learned how the, the let's, let's enlighten our audience why the yeah. lobster and, and that whole, the shell. Yes. I read Trevor Corson's book. It must've been 2005 or so. I think right after it had come out, just as pleasure reading. And I'm reading this passage about the unbelievably traumatic experience a lobster goes through every time it wants to grow. It literally has to rip its body out from inside of its shell, even pulling its big claw through the knuckles and the arm. And if it doesn't do it quickly enough, it'll die trying. Oh. And um, I'm, I'm reading this and then there's this image of this soft, fleshy creature lying on the floor of the ocean ready for anyone to eat it, even another lobster. And I, I just said, oh my God, that's me. That's how I feel right now. I was going through a difficult time in the business with challenges and growth and employees. And I was just like, there's got to be something in this. And I started to see that in business, there are these times when we have this unbelievably strong, hard shell. And then there are the times that we're this fleshy, vulnerable mess. And um, I adopted this idea that if we could use the awareness of the fact that these molts, these times when we're fleshy and vulnerable, were coming, maybe we could do something to plan and prepare so that they were a little less difficult to manage. That's really interesting, you know, because one of the words that's sort of quote, kind of a buzzword today is authenticity. And I think with social media and a lot of, a lot of marketing these days where it's not, you know, from the 60s, 70s, where you're building brands, there's so much more uh, people being out in front. And therefore, the more authentic you are, the more you relate to the right people. I'm sure you repel people too. That's part of the deal. But <laughs> that to me reminds me of, you know, when you shed your shell, because we all have, we all have an image, you know, it's funny when you see some on Facebook, LinkedIn, you'll see some memes where <laughs> what the public sees and 
get this guy with a big, you know, of suit of steel or whatever. Yeah. And then, you know, when that goes away, he's cowering in the corner. Where's my next customer coming from? So there's some of that. But you're right. When a, when a, when a company grows, you know, you can't just grow by saying, hey, let's grow. You really got to put yourself out there. There's investments and things like that. And I think that opens you up to, as you say, very, very vulnerable, being vulnerable. Yeah. And I think, I think it just becomes easier to handle the times that we're vulnerable if we remember that they're going to happen. And it just makes it a little bit, a little bit less painful to say, oh my God, why did this happen to me? When you can say, I should have known this was going to happen to me. And I did all of these things to be ready for it. I wonder if, um, it's just the way my marketing mind goes. I bet your next book has something to do with 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 cleaning the coffee pot because, you know, it, a little disclosure here. I, I had a um, just a, a deathly fear of public speaking. I almost didn't graduate high school, but then when I started writing books, I started getting these speaking invitations, and for a while, I oh, I'm too busy, but thanks. Well, I learned how to be a speaker. One of the ways I did that, aside from Dale Carnegie and Toastmasters, is I went to a professional hypnotist. And Josh, he told me, he said, Jim, all the stuff you're doing is fine. You're doing positive affirmations and all these different things. But he said, you're laying good stuff on top of bad. He goes, I want you to think of a coffee pot. And let's say you're so into coffee, you buy this tremendously expensive bag of coffee from Colombia or Italy, wherever. And, yeah. but you're going to, you're going to make this great pot of coffee in a pot that has crud. You've got to clean out the crud to make wow. a great pot of coffee. So there's a gift to you. You could probably, yeah, I wish I'd known about that guy <laughs> when I was selling Ernex coffee machine cleaners. <laughs> yeah. Right. So there's probably be something there, but um, that's what you mean. I think also by, by shedding the shell, because unless you kind of like your, like your, um, your former business was cleaning, cleaning out the urns and things, that's the way you keep, making great cups of coffee. So that's kind of the, the metaphor for business growth. In, on so many levels. I mean, to me, business growth and business entrepreneurship is so much about humility. And you really have to put yourself out there. You really have to sort of recognize that if you're trying to make the sale, sometimes, you know, people aren't going to be that nice or not going to be that warm. But if you recognize that you're not in it to, to do anything more than make the sale and it's not personal, it, you can sort of develop that sense of humility. So, Josh, you said um, you worked on Wall Street and then you did you get a, a business degree? Did you say at the beginning? I did. I have an MBA from uh, the Kellogg School at Northwestern. Wow. Oh, that's that's no uh, Delaware County Community College. So, um, so when you when so when you definitely went to the family business, you weren't you weren't just going to, you know, improve sales 5%. You really had some huge, huge plans, which is kind of the, the I don't know, it's the third chapter, thinking bigger in, in your book, Grow Like a Lobster. Talk a little bit about, because I happen to believe many, many, many entrepreneurs um, just don't think big enough. You know, I, yeah. I gave... I gave a key, we're all, sorry for my long questions, but I gave a keynote a couple of years ago and you know, sometimes you get tired of doing the same keynote, but, and I was talking about new entrepreneurs, new small business owners. And of course is the 80% fail in the first five years. And I said, I wonder if the 20% who survive what they make. So I Googled, what is the average small business owner making the United States? Boom. There's the answer. $58,399. I didn't know that, but I'm like, why in the world would you leave direct deposit every two weeks, paid insurance <laughs> and vacation, and at least the ability to potentially let go at the end of the day for 58000 So I think so many people just don't think big enough about what's possible with the business they've started. Do you agree? Yeah, yeah. For me, you know, it was all about not so, it was never really so much about making a set amount of money as much as it was about 
creating what I called, and it's funny, the title of your, your podcast, I called building my dream job. Yep. And my dream job and my dream organization was always one that was an organization filled with people that I enjoyed working with, that I found challenging, that gave me the proper financial returns. But also, I wanted to build an organization that had the potential to exist and operate without my daily presence so that I would have the freedom to pursue my other dreams, my other interests, my other hobbies. And that really was the foundation of what I was trying to do. And fortunately for me, that also led to um, significant financial security. When you, um, I'm curious what lessons, and I don't know, what's the one thing, but what, what's some of the big lessons that you've learned when you took um, a family business and turned it into a global market leader? That, like looking back on it now from, from your, uh, your home in Italy, as you look back on what you did, what, what's like the first, second, or third thing that pops into your head? Oh, for me, the most important thing in any business is focusing and deciding what the one thing you want to be really great at is hmm. and sh- avoiding distractions. If you can figure out the one thing you want your business to be today, you can build upon that. You can make yourself great and the best in the world at that. And then when it's time to do the next thing, you do that. And the other, the other big lesson for me is taking the time to articulate your mission and your values in a way that ties back to that one thing that you're trying to be and who you want to be. Because I really believe that if you take the time to put on paper and document where you're going, it's much easier to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's, that's really what it came down to for me. So um, circling back to the business, it had many different products. And so you said, I want to be known for one thing. Is, is that yeah. what you did? You kind of shed some of the other things? Yeah. So, In fact, I shed over 55% of the business's product sales, closed them down only to focus on coffee and cleaning products for coffee machines. And I summarized and articulated who we were and what we wanted to be with one line. All our mission was, was to help people make better tasting coffee. And from that foundation and that focus, we were able to say no when someone asked us to make a cleaning product for a deep fryer, or when someone asks us to make a, a descaling agent for um, a home heating system, all we wanted to do was help people make better tasting coffee. And that led from just cleaning coffee machines to cleaning the milk systems on coffee machines to descaling systems, even to eventually to making ice machine cleaners because so many of the coffee shop chains were working with ice. But yeah. it was all about helping make better tasting coffee. And having that focus really allowed us to avoid distract, getting distracted. I'm just curious, was it, so was, that a, was coffee a passion of yours? Was just growing the business a passion of yours? Like what was the driving force there? Yeah, coffee wasn't a passion of mine at all. <laughs> okay. um, in fact, you know, although I was passionate about being successful in business, I was deeply unemotional in terms of how I thought about the business. The way I was measuring my success and failures was purely on with numbers. And it wasn't, nothing was ever personal. The decisions I made were always about, is the best thing for the business? Is this the thing that gonna, is going to bring us forward, going to help us be more profitable next year, going to help us reach that new market or hire that new key employee? And, and that was it. And I think by separating the personal emotional from um, the the object at hand and the task at hand, it made it a lot easier to stay focused and avoid distraction. 
So um, I started coaching in 2009, so about 10 years now. And I'll tell you the one thing, which is, it's not the challenge for me because it's kind of what I do, but most entrepreneurs that I'm coaching, they have you know, a laundry list of things that they want to do. And like you said, we got to focus on the one thing. I had a um, uh, somebody on my boat, I do a half day consult. And he was on the boat yesterday, half a dozen different things. This, this, is the, this is the one that I think is going to make the most amount of money fastest that fits in your wheelhouse, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And then what about this? No, let, we're going to do this. <laughs> and that, yeah. You know what I mean? It's, I think it's just, you know, I don't know if it's ADD or a squirrel, but you know, what is it about entrepreneurs that have this insatiable appetite to create and build? Yeah. I mean, I think there's so much fun and thrill in it. I I also think that um, there's, there's some entrepreneurs that are going to be successful and are going to, going to do really good things, but they're never going to reach their fullest potential. I don't think until they figure out how to say no. Sometimes you try and do so many different things and you say yes to everything that the thing that you could be great at suffers because your bandwidth is consumed focusing on something that you probably knew wasn't worth your time. And sometimes that sort of diversification or over diversification, in my opinion, comes from a little bit of insecurity because we're trying to hedge our bets and make sure that we can always have something going. For me, it was like, let's go all in and let's see what happens. I'm young enough. I'm going to make this happen. And if it doesn't, that's not even a, a thought. It is going to. And right. uh, by being that focused, I think it, it helps you really build extraordinary um, things. Do you have a thought process on, um, that you've used and, and you, that you help people with now on how to find that one thing? So somebody's got, like your business, seven or eight different things, or, or maybe they've got one or two things that are generating revenue, but they got 12 ideas. How do you find and how do you, how do you settle on that one thing? Yeah, well, it's, it's funny. I, the first thing I do when I want to identify, help someone identify it is I want to know what's important to them. Um, so I start with that. I mean, for me, it was very important to make stuff. I wanted things to be touchable. So I knew that if I wasn't something that we as a business were going to be able to make ourselves, it was being outsourced, that probably wasn't going to fit what was important to me personally. And then I have a, a series of steps where I would look at uh, with, with a potential, someone I'm advising or someone I'm working with, market size, market potential, competitive situation. And the big thing for me, because I'm really a, a brand and a marketing guy, is what's ownable? What can you do that you can protect in some way, even without intellectual property or patents? What is there special about how you do something or know how to do something that you can brand? And through that brand, you can command a premium um, in the price that you charge. Hmm. That's, that's awesome. Um, what about um, the, as one of your chapters, molting pains, the people, is that I'm guessing when you were shedding some of those other product lines, there were some people that probably got let go because they were part of that division. That was probably pretty painful. Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, it wasn't quite in those early stages that we were ready to molt. I st- the business I, I, I began with was only about 12 employees. So we were really sort of not much. It was when we got to a much larger scale of the business that I started to recognize that not everyone that we hire into an organization is going to make the full journey. Right. And somewhere along the way, I got comfortable with the idea that that's okay. People can contribute for a certain period of time. You can work with them to see how they can evolve as the business grows and expands. But sometimes, and to use the lobster metaphor, I said, it's okay to shed the claw, um, which is what a lobster does sometimes when it has to make sure that it 
gets its body out of its shell in time for its gills to start working. It yeah. literally lets its claw be ripped off so that its gills can, start, it can continue breathing. So I started to realize that, you know, we want great people. We want to be surrounded by great people. Some people are good for a limit within an organization. And when the organization and generally the employee recognize it, maybe it's time for them to move on and for sort of the next type of person to be brought into the role or expanded to. And it's, it's hard, it's difficult, but I said earlier, if you stay away from being too emotional about it and you use the idea that what's right for the business is probably also right for that employee if it's time for them to go. Right. You know, it's never easy when you're <clears throat> in that storm. But my one of the things I did in my former life, I was um, had a franchise and we helped grow this um, small chain of 14 stores to 80 stores in 18 states. And the owner was very, very loyal to early people who, who started. But as the company grew and took on a whole new dynamic, the early people just weren't going for the ride. In fact, they resisted. And um you know, one of the things I learned as some of the people were let go is quite painful, but you were actually doing them a favor in the long run as well, because they were miserable and uncomfortable and didn't see the vision and they went out and did something else. So it's kind of hard, obviously, letting people go who are with you from the beginning, but I think you're doing both your business and the individual a favor by, you know, coming to that conclusion. I couldn't agree more. I, I think it's absolutely correct. There are just people that when it's not right for the, for the business, it's probably not right for them and they probably know it and will appreciate it and be in a position to go find the next thing that's a fit for them. Well, what a fun interview. My gosh, I, I would love to have you back because I could, I could easily go another half hour. So maybe in a couple of months, I'll reach out again. Would love to, I'd love pleasure. to dive into the sale of, you know, the, and going from private equity and things like that. So, um, in the meantime, how can people find your book? How can they connect with you? How can they drop by if they're ever in Florence, Italy? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So you can find the book, Grow Like a Lobster, anywhere on Amazon, anywhere in the world. And uh, it's also available on audio and Audible and all those sources. Um, I have a personal website that's uh, joshua-dick.com or joshua-dick.com. And through there, you can subscribe to a blog that I've been writing with little two, three-minute reads about business concepts I like to share. And you can also contact me through there. And there's also a website related to the book, which is growlikealobster.com. So I'm pretty, pretty reachable, pretty findable on the internet. That's awesome. And I'm, I'm glad you did the audiobook. I, I resist. People, people kept telling me, but, but I did my fifth, sixth, and seventh book. I did audio versions. And that, that sounds like 50% more than the others. It's people fascinating just, yeah, I to see how people buy it and listen to it. I can understand it. I appreciate it. I like to listen to books sometimes myself as well. Yeah. Josh, thanks so much. It was really, really great connecting with you. Thanks for sharing some uh, great information this morning. And thank you to you. Really enjoyed it. Hey, folks, that wraps up our very special interview all about how to grow like a lobster with Josh Dick. And again, he is from Florence, Italy. So cool. I don't think I can. Hold, I don't have enough fuel to get over there. So if we go meet, we'll have to do it by plane. Anyway, I'm Captain Jim Palmer, the Dream Business Coach. If you're connected with me here only on this podcast, which is hard to believe for seven years, then my home base is getjimpalmer.com. And if you're interested in the uh, Dream Business Mastermind, that is dreambizcoaching, dreambizcoaching.com. But until this time next week, another fantastic interview. You take good care. 
Now it's time to go implement what you've learned. Great ideas are nice, but results only happen through action and implementation. So stay focused. Kick all distractions to the curb. Sleep a little less if you have to. And create your dream business now so you too can live your dream lifestyle. To learn about building your dream business, join Jim's free Dream Business Facebook community at dreambizgroup.com. That's dreambizgroup.com. See you next week for more Dream Business Radio.